When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Welcome to the New Books Network. Now we come to one of the biggest movie stories of the year, Heaven's Gate, the $36 million <laughs> Western with a message that was first released last November in New York City, where it was thoroughly roasted by critics there and then pulled from release after only one week's run, pulled to be re-edited from its running time of more than three and a half hours. I saw the long version of the film in New York back in November, and it was pretty much of a mess. Bad sound, confusing characters and locations. Now, however, the film's been cut by 40%. It runs two hours and 18 minutes, and it's still a turkey. Heaven's Gate, set mostly in Wyoming in 1890, tells the story of the Johnson County Wars, wars between a cattle growers association and immigrant farm families. In the film, the association draws up a death list of 125 immigrants and then hires thugs to have them murdered. Chris Christopherson plays the Harvard U.S. Marshal who wants to keep the peace. Christopher Walken plays a hired gun out to kill the immigrants, and French actress Isabelle Huppert plays a prostitute whom they both love. It's mostly because of the illogical character relationships, though, that Heaven's Gate, in its long form and its short form, fails completely. Okay, now I agree with everything you've said so far. I want to go on and add some more categories. First of all, this is the most unpleasant movie to look at that I can remember. Not only do you get all the dust that we saw in that scene, yes. but in other scenes you have smoke. You have fog. Mm -hmm. You cannot see the people. You can't see it, what they're doing. Then every scene is shot in soft focus, mm -hmm. and it's all toned down into sepia tones of kind of a dirty, muddy yellow, yeah. so that there's nothing pleasant to look at. You it's, it's almost as if they set out to spend $36 million and put almost nothing on the screen. Well, the, the, the thing that bugged me was that there's dust in all the rooms. So on the interior shots, uh -huh. it's also a lot uh -huh. of fog. I think this is just a, an example of what can go wrong when you try to build a grand-scale movie and forget mm -hmm for me at least, that the characters are all important. They've spent too much money on the props, not enough time on writing characters who are going to walk in front of the props. Hello, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome back to this great episode I know we're going to have of 15-Minute Film Fanatics. The premise of the show, as you probably know, is that Mike and I watch movies separately and talk about it for the first time. Now, if we were ever going to have a very special episode, capital V, capital S, capital E, this is the one. Because today we're going to do Heaven's Gate, the 1980 film directed and written by Michael Cimino. 
why are we doing this film today? Because we've done the deer hunter. We both admire that very much. Months ago, I saw Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate, which was recut, put on Criterion. And I we did a one shot on it. You can go back in our back catalog and listen to it. And I said to Mike, you've got to see this. Mike renewed his subscription to Criterion. I think from the day he did that, every 10 minutes, I texted him and said, watch Heaven's Gate. Watch. I mean, literally, I'm only exaggerating a tiny bit. Am I not, Mike? Uh, you're not exaggerating at all. So I kept saying, you've got to watch Heaven's Gate. And he finally did. And and uh, I said, okay, we're going to do the episode. So I'm so excited to talk about it. The only the only information I got from Mike was just to stop me and calm me down. He put great movie. So that's all we've discussed about Heaven's Gate. I can't wait to talk about this. I've already seen it twice, all beautiful three hours and 40 minutes of it. In part one, we talk about overall what it's like to watch this movie. Mike, go. This movie is a byword amongst anyone with whom you study film. And what I mean by byword is it it's the er financial disaster of making a movie. Um, uh, if you try to watch some other materials about Heaven's Gate, you will find such titles as the movie that ruined Hollywood, uh, the disaster that ruined the star system, um, why they don't make great movies anymore. This is, for whatever reason, this is the scapegoat for every, uh, you know, quote unquote, bloated, overproduced, over budget movie. Now, that ignores the entire history of Hollywood and also the subsequent history of Hollywood, which has been uh, as of as of this recording, you know, another 40 some odd years of bloated, uh, you know, overproduced movies that probably shouldn't have been made and, and didn't didn't make their money back. Now, in inside, there is a kernel of truth. Obviously, this movie was over budget. Um, Michael Cimino's final beautiful vision for this movie did not match the kind of cowboy movie that the studio wanted to put out. Nor was it released because they made him recut it and he insisted his whole life that this is not the movie I made. They made him cut the time so the audience couldn't couldn't follow it. And it was really dark. The colors weren't right. Plus, let me add on top of that, that the sound editing in the version that went out was totally horrible. The, the, none of the music matched up with what he had in his brain or what was in the original cut. And so he showed up with a master. He showed up with the Mona Lisa and they said, um, that's great, but could you fit that on a stamp? And it didn't match his original vision and no, and nobody blames him. And now what's happening is that more people are watching the cut of the film that he intended. Of course, now that he's dead and nobody can pat him on the back and they're finding out that it is the Mona Lisa, that it is a beautiful movie, that so many of the over budget, uh, you know, quote unquote, Hollywood messes are truly messes. But this is a movie that is absolutely incomprehensible unless you take in the very first moment of the film and you sit there and you wait for the last moment of the film and then it all makes sense. And th this, there's just, this is the kind of scandal on like, Imagine if the Super Bowl were called because like somebody made a play with their shoes untied or something and the refs decided the game. This would this would be it's the it's the kind of like decades generational anger that never goes away. It's like the kind of anger that children inherit from their parents. Probably my children will inherit from me. It's like, how could they ruin this guy's life? And that's not an exaggeration. They ruined his life. It's not like they ruined his movie. He got over it. He made other movies. They ruined his life. He made a perfect movie and they punished him. When we did Kiss Me Deadly, one of the things that I, I said to you was that that movie gets a lot of praise because it gets a lot of praise and there's a snowball effect. 
whether that's true or not, that you know, that's something we talked about in the episode. In this film, of course, it got a lot of of calumny and it got a lot of blame and it got a lot of bad press, which of course, and and for all I, I mean, I didn't see it in 1980. I only saw it, you know, six months ago for the first time. So yeah, if I went to the movies in 1980, I would have sat there and seen this dim, scratchy thing where I couldn't follow the plot or know who was speaking or understand what was going on. And I would have walked out and said, Yeah, no kidding, good. This guy should never I guess the devil, I guess the um, the deer hunter and you know, um Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. We're both, you know, one-offs and that's it, or two-offs, so to speak. But when you see it now, you can't believe it. Now, of course, the bad press of this film was helped out. There was a book that came out called Final Cut, which, which of course, which is still in print and very gossipy and entertaining, written by one of the producers about how Michael Cimino ruined or almost, you know, bankrupted the United Artists. Um, but recently, there's a book called Cimino, the, the Price of a Vision. And that's a terrific, terrific book. And you can listen to it on the New Books Network. It's a great interview where the author talks about, you know, how a lot of that stuff isn't really true and ab about the struggles he had of making the film. I think this film is beautifully photographed. It's got great music, great performances, a wonderful script, which by the way, was not made up as he went along. Chimino would tell, if you read the new book, he would just tell the studios what they wanted to hear. But many movies go over budget. Many movies go over schedule. Many great directors that we love, you know, David Lean, Steven Spielberg, Scorsese, have had, uh, uh, Coppola, right? I know how you feel about Dracula, have had giant films that have gone way over budget and that might seem now, you know, like, what were they thinking? How did that not ruin their career? And they kept going and made other movies afterwards. And and here and here's my, here's my real gripe. Um, okay, I like... I love everything Coppola did before Apocalypse Now, and I think he went kind of crazy afterward. When you see the different cuts of Apocalypse Now, you need to create some kind of average in your mind of all the cuts to kind of see what he was thinking. And the movie that you really love, if you like Apocalypse Now, doesn't really exist. It's like it it, it exists fractilically or like some kind of some kind of image or projection out of all the different cuts of apocalypse now there are you may you may love it for the way that he made stuff up on the spot there there's um apocalypse now buffs who know like which version of the script he had in his hand when they shot on which day and 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 it is a beautiful mess this movie though is not a beautiful mess the this movie you you don't need to guess what the vision is this cut of the film is the vision it's it it is it's as its creator intended and it totally works if you stay with it through i mean I, I it's three and a half hours but it didn't feel like three and a half hours it felt like a normal two-hour movie because it's because it's absolutely fantastic and gripping from its first moment to its to its last and so i think it distinguishes itself from other beautiful messes because you don't have to guess what this guy was thinking he literally he left it all out on the print and they just didn't put it in front of audiences. And for a film that is this grandiose and sweeping, right? It's amazing how many beautiful small moments are in there. I mean, we could do a whole episode where we just go back and forth like ping pong players and say great small moments. Like, you know, like like when they're having a town meeting, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, where all the the um, the uh, the Europeans are banging their shovels. Like that's a great moment. You know, John Hurt's hair in the beginning, his red hair. I mean, there's a, there's a million great moments in this along with these spectacular sequences like the dance in the beginning and like, you know, the the, the fight around the tree at the end there's moments in this movie that appear chaotic they appear chaotic there are some there are some jackson pollock like uh chaos and you can argue about how much of uh, how much he is actually able to control the flow of the paint but i can tell you that this was actually that this was written and directed 
by somebody who has the greatest eye for and care for each particular detail and enjoyed those details and believed that those details would add up to a great, beautiful, sweeping vision. Uh, and they they robbed this guy. And speaking of details and speaking of a sweeping vision, the, another thing the movie does well is that talk about swinging for the fences, right? I mean, talk about swinging for the fences. What's your movie about? It's about America. And I'm going to take it's about it's about everything America does right and everything America does wrong. And all, all it's about the United States. But there's also these unbelievably powerful emotional scenes. Like how great is the scene where Chris Christopherson leaves her when she decides she's 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 chosen Christopher Walken and he leaves. That is a that is a great heartbreak scene, isn't it? It's uh, it's one of the best because Chris Christopherson has the manliest cry. You can't you can't even imagine writing that in the script because again, wh- who could pull that off besides Chris Christopherson? And to pull, and well, to go back to your initial angry rant, which I of course loved hearing, is that he makes a Star Is Born. So he's on, you know, he's 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 big stuff now. He made a Star Is Born with Barbara Streisand. Then he does this. His name is over the title. He's the only name for all the famous people. Chris Christopherson, Heaven's Gate. He's unbelievably great in the movie. How many times when you watch this did you say to yourself, "Why aren't there sixty more movies where Chris Christopherson plays a cowboy?" I don't know. Okay, welcome back. So in part two, of course, we talk about key scenes or our favorite moments. I don't I don't know how you choose just one, but Dan, if you had to choose just one. I would start with the scene where it's a small moment where Cully, the train conductor, is talking to Chris Christopherson, and they're looking at all the immigrants from Eastern Europe piled up on top of the cars, piled up at the docks. And he says to Chris Christopherson, every day I say I won't give them another penny, and then I do. And it's interesting because the train conductor, Cully, he wants to be colder and he wants to kind of divorce himself emotionally from what's going on in the country, but he can't because his conscience kind of pulls him in. And he knows like lot, like the Mr. Spock and me should say, no, no, it's not going to do anything. But the, the Captain Kirk says, no, you got to do something. And I think that that resonates with Jim later on in the film because Jim James Avril is a good guy. And, you know, he when he goes and stops the guy beating up the immigrant, he says, I think you won. And you get these little flashes of it. He, he's the sheriff of Johnson County. He wants to do the right thing. But I think later on, he wants to be colder. Ella chooses Nate and then they fire him. The, the mayor and the town council fire him. And there's that scene where he's shaving and getting dressed to leave at the end. And he says, what do you want me to say? I told you so. Well, I did tell you so. And then she leaves and he walks out of JB's and the, he, th- he thinks the movie's over. And then he goes back. And I think the movie's really great because it's about a guy who, who, who wants to, wants to be colder who wants to be like billy that's why john hurts in the film he's the jester he just laughs at everything all flesh is grass i'm going to be drunk that's how you deal with these people just just get drunk and go along for the ride and he he ends up dying that way chris christopherson wants to do the right thing then he says these people don't deserve it they're like the people at the end of high noon but then he gets pulled back in and he tries to save them and then he's still he's still there with them and then he sees the army come rolling in and his head just hangs like that and it's it's about a guy who wants to do the right thing, who tries and finds it that it doesn't matter. Okay, well, I was right. You can't choose just one. Uh, so, but what's Cully's favorite word? What's the what's the word he keeps saying? Citizen, with a cat with a capital C. But I was also thinking about the graduation scene. Do you, do, do you remember the thing that they say when they give you a diploma? They say we've we've conferred this degree upon you with all the rights and privileges thereof, and responsibilities thereof which i always thought i always thought that that was that 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 was kind of a cheesy line 
But this movie is exactly like, what if you took a brand new territory and certain people in that territory did have citizenship and certain people in there didn't have citizenship? What would be their rights, privileges, and responsibilities? This entire movie, starting with a graduation, is exactly as though somebody took those three words literally and teased them out until it was done, right? It's because this is a struggle between citizens and non-citizens. Like you said, it's, a, it's everything America is in terms of what it gets right and what it gets terribly, terribly wrong. You can sit, no matter what you think of America, you can sit and watch this movie and your point of view is represented. Yeah, because you could you could easily make an argument to, to James Avril when he's leaving, like, yeah, don't go back. Don't go back. You're not responsible for these people. But then there's that great moment where he's like, oh, yes, I am. In some way, that because I'm, I, whatever reason, I'm here and I have to go back. And isn't it interesting how Cully dies? He dies trying to warn them Right. Because he thinks he's responsible. I have to, he, they're responsible for doing the right thing. And of course, he realizes you you can't because I love how about when all the guys on the, all the, um, the killers come over the ridge like orcs and he realizes this is it. It's over. But he, he knew he says to hell with it. I didn't like that job anyway, which is that's, that's his joke. That's his joke with himself, which is I can struggle to, I can, I can struggle to be one of them or I can just give in and, and be who I am. What's your moment? Um, my, my moment uh, has to do with uh, also my favorite piece of the set, which is when um, the the cabin burns down uh, with uh, Christopher Walken and, and Nate Champion inside of it. Uh, they're the same person, if you haven't seen the movie. Uh, and all the wallpaper that he's put on the wall, which is fr from these different periodicals, uh, all burns up and starts to curl. What the movie is about is about uh, civilization, but not with ironic quotes and not civilization in the postmodern sense. Nate Champion has two guys living with him. One of one is his friend played by um, Mickey Rourke, and the other is the guy who hasn't bathed in like two years who teaches him how to uh, how you catch a wolf. And one of the implied questions is, well, if he's trying to bring his new bride there and he's trying to convince her to marry him, why does he have these two guys living with him? Because civilization is not to live alone in the woods. It's not to live alone in the woods. You have to make some kind of home. You have to you have to have a society of other people. And the society of other people, especially those two other people, would be like if you said, I'm going to wallpaper the cabin because I, I, I don't want to live surrounded by the wood. I want to live surrounded by something human. But it was just one. It was just one centimeter thick, one millimeter thick of paper all the way around and how easily that's destroyed and how easily that that's burned down right what what this movie is trying to tell you amongst other things that it's trying to tell you is that society real civilization is not an unlimited resource it only exists where people care to make it and no matter how fancy it looks or what it appears to be to you it's a one millimeter thick thing of paper that covers feet of wood and the wood goes all the way down, but the humanity is the surface that you can see, which is the paper all the way around. And it's the and it's the paper that moves her because she doesn't want to live out in the middle of the woods either. She wants to live in some sort of in some sort of society. And hit and and his thesis works. His thesis is that if she sits down in the cabin with him and she sees what he's like, and she understands that right, there's things about himself that he's not educated enough to articulate. If you remember, he's he's got the early version of, of a Reader's Digest, and he's trying to copy out not the text of the book, but the summaries of the book so that he can learn to be literate, so that he can write her, his last note to her. 
right? What he's saying is, I'm like that, right? I, I am just one little, a couple of pieces of wallpaper on wood that goes feet deep. But if you could see me, I could articulate things about myself uh, th that I can't, that I can't tell you. And it does sway her and she does want to live with him, but it's the fragility of that. It's, it's so beautiful, but it's also something that, that will fall down by itself naturally. And if you set fire to it can be burned down. Okay. Welcome back. So in part three, of course, we talked about the ending, the title, like, I don't even know if there's any key takeaways from this movie. That's the key takeaways, the whole movie, you start wherever you want. All right. So let's talk about the ending and let's go back to what you said before about the graduation. There are cuts of this film where the graduation, the entire graduation scene is, is not in the film where when it was presented to original viewers, where it just starts with him on the train, getting his boots on. Now, you know, and I can see by the face Mike is making right now, he's shaking his head. He's doing a total eye roll at that idea. And he's correct. You need the graduation scene. You need it. So let's talk about the graduation versus the end. Go forth, you know, civilize you manifest destiny, do all these great things. When you graduate, you are full of promise. And that's what the valedictory speech is. And it's this, you know, Joseph Cotton gives that whole speech about your responsibilities as a Harvard graduate. Billy pokes fun at it, but it's all in the spirit of like, now we are, we're the class of 70. I'm going to go out from Harvard. We're going to civilize the world. Um, the tree they dance around in the beginning, of course, is mirrored by the battle at the end, right? So we dance around this tree. We look great. We're young. Um, he says in the movie over and over, I hate getting old. He has that picture of himself and his girlfriend at Harvard, right? But of course, the promise of that moment, the promise of dancing around that tree and the beauty of it becomes the nightmare of everybody going around the circle with those bulwarks, with with the with the guys trying to um, kill them all. In the so there's that great thing of how like the, the dreams and the promise of this generation of these guys has been frustrated and destroyed. And you could pick 1870, you could pick 1970, you could you could do a lot with that idea, and that's a big thing of the end. But how about at the end when his he's on the he's on the yacht at the end. And the last line of the film, of all the last lines you could have is Chris Christopher's is in, in his like beautiful room. The butler comes in, his vapid wife, who he's married from Harvard, the same way. She looks up at him and says, can I have a cigarette? She doesn't even move. Can I have a cigarette? That's the last line of the movie. It's perfect. He gives it to her. And now he is old. He is with the girl in the photo. And it's it's empty. And he knows it. He doesn't even, it's so great that when we did the Long Good Friday, we talked about how the power of silence, it's so great that Chris Christopherson doesn't have a last line because you could read it in his face, right? And it's just, it's empty and I can't, and I have all the money, but you know, I'd rather be at that roller rink one more time. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, the, the movie's about vertigo in all its different senses. But you, you, so you brought up two, right? Which is the, the battle and the tree. You just mentioned the roller rink, which is literally the guy fiddling, the guy fiddling on skates. But I think it's also why Jim is a drunk. It's he wants to stop time. He wants he, he wants it to keep spinning like it's dancing forever. And when he feels that sense of regret, he he drinks literally until he can't move. That's why he's always looking for his boots, because he doesn't remember where where he kicked them off. And that's that's the movie's way of telling you that he's you know, he's a he's a lifer in terms of uh, in terms of real alcohol use. Everybody in the movie drinks, but there's only one person who doesn't know where his shoes are you know, which is, which is Jim, the movie gives you the movie gives you the remedy, because I think that certain people thinking about this movie are kind of set up for this downer formula, which is you can you can put the flimsy bulwark of either the the wallpaper or the little fortifications that they make to win the battle. But ultimately, but ultimately, you you lose. Um, and you you've mentioned twice now that you know Jim hangs his head literally when the cavalry arrives because he he thinks he's won but it's but it's too late but he finds out too late what the real formula is because while everybody's screaming and people are randomly screaming some people are screaming in russian some people are screaming in german the kind of mercenary army that they put together screaming everybody's screaming do you remember what ella screams she screams for america and the re- the reason it's for America is because maybe this maybe this one plot of land that I have uh, doesn't mean anything to anybody else, but it means something to me. And she says, my my father went down in a similar kind of situation in a similar kind of purge. Right? It's like they can chase you out of Europe, they can chase you to America, they can chase you state to state, right? And and if I move on, if I go west or I go east, it's either already happened in the east or it's going to happen to me in whatever state that I, that I move in. And so the, the way, the way to surmount that circumstance is to, is to go down in it, but at least you, but at least you lay down, you become the the part of the bulwark. You're no longer what's behind it. You are it for, for the other people that are behind you, because they, it's clear that though they don't win a victory, that the plan doesn't work and it's not going to work again. That's what Jim tries to be. Sorry. That's what Jim tries to be. He tries to be that bulwark. That that's right, and but what 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 he ends up being is something is something outside of it. He jo- he he joins them five minutes too late, and can't spiritually join them in the same way. And I think that the the movie doesn't hold any punches for Jim. The same is not true, by the way, of Nate Champion. Right when Nate Champion is is having the stare down with the other Russian guy, he says, "You look like me, but you work for them." Right, and we you don't get any sense of that. He never elaborates on it, but he does say, "I'll choose what I am." It's clear that he's illiterate at the start of the movie, but by the middle of the movie, he's been learning to write, right? So that so that he can impress else, so that he can finally he can finally win her, and and so he makes he makes the right choices at the right time, right? But and and it's not like he doesn't drink in the in the movie, but the, but. Well, he, I mean, Nate, Nate's choices, he makes he makes his choice at the right time. But of course, he also gets shot like Bonnie and Clyde. Well, but but the, but the point is that he he at least lives a meaningful existence and he meet, he lives a meaningful existence by staring it in the face. Right there. Right. 
now you don't get like you don't get glimpses of young Nate, but there's a point at which he says, you know what? I either have to do certain things or I got to be like this. Okay, I choose this. And the intentionality of those choices is I think what gives him his meaning. You right, you don't accidentally wallpaper your cabin. You purposefully wallpaper your cabin. You don't accidentally learn to write. You don't accidentally shoot a guy who you think is responsible for an atrocity in your boss's tent, knowing that they're going to come after you, right? The point is that death is coming for you either way. Your name is on the list. You're, you are on the death list. Exactly, right? Everybody's name is on the list. Now you can choose to you can choose to poke the bear and be there you know, when, when the list is read, but either way, you're on it. And I think that there, there really is something about Jim. There's something about his inner sentimentality of carrying the photo with him wherever he goes, of getting drunk like it's 1870, right? He's going to party like it's 1870, no matter, right? No matter what he's, no matter what he's doing. Well, that's why the ending, I think is such a, like, that's why the sound you make when you see the ending the first time is, oh man, like he's just on this, he's surrounded in, in this, he's on the most opulent yacht you could imagine, but it's empty. Like here, where is that yacht going? Where's that yacht going, Mike? Rhode Island. Well, it is, it's in Rhode Island, but you know where it's going? Nowhere. That yacht is going nowhere, right? And at least he wanted to go somewhere. I never got the sense that Jim was as much of a drunk as as you're portraying him now, and maybe that's something I didn't notice. But I think it. I think that Jim has moments where he rises to the surface of what's challenging him, and you're with him, and you hope he can do it. But everyone's name was on the list. Like he tells, um, he tells Sam Waterson at one point, "You're not in my class, Canton, and you never will be. You'd have to die first and be born again." And you're totally on his side when he says that. It's like a Clint Eastwood line, right? Because remember, he was in the Stock Growers Association, but what happened? They threw him out. They threw him out. Why? Because he, he wouldn't go along with this kind of thing. Like he would never put up with the death list. And he says there better be a warrant for every name on that. But you also get the sense that even like as if the death, the death list writers are going to be like, oh, indeed, we have the paperwork right here. He knows that it's futile to try to fight this thing. And it's about him try, trying to be able to do it. And at the end, yeah, Nate runs out with that bench, like as if that's going to be his great shield against, against the, the, the evils of the world, knowing it. He knows he's going to die. So he writes the letter in his pocket, right? And, and you're so moved by that. And then it's like a 180 of how you feel at the end when you see James on the boat, because you're like, that's it, right? That's that's your life now. Can I have a cigarette? So the, the point is, listen, you're going to end up dead in a hail of bullets. You can choose to fight back and pr to prepare to the extent that you have that note in your vest, right? Like you can write while the cabin burns down, or you can be like Billy Right. Billy says all flesh is grass and he's getting drunk while they're surrounding him and he catches a random bullet. But right. The point of which is you don't even see who shoots him. Right. You don't see who shoots. It doesn't him. matter. You're just going to catch a random one. But there are certain people like Nate who clearly he got to the bottom of it. But when you catch him, he's in the middle and he's on his ascent. He's he's leading an intentional life because he at least knows where he started and where he's going. And I don't get the sense that Jim is a man who knows where he's going. And that's that's why he pays the penalty in 1903. You also bring up this idea, and I know we're going longer than 15 minutes, but who cares? It's a three and a half it's hour. It's our show. It's our show, and it's a three and a half hour movie. Another thing you just made me think of is why Ella chooses Nate. Because you could also, I think, make the art, which they act like, that's what I love about this movie is they act like totally recognizable human beings where you can't go 100%. This is their motivation. They act like they're, they're like emotionally like a lot of us is that Nate's a better, Nate's a better deal. Nate's a safer choice 
Um, but she loves Chris Christopherson more because she does not dance with Nate in the roller rink. And, and they don't, she does not look at Christopher Walken like the way she looks at, at, at Chris Christopherson. And I think when she decides to go with Nate, Nate's the safer bet. Chris Christopherson is more romantic. He's more, he's more um, interesting. He's more dashing, but Nate, if you're going to build a civilization here, I'm going to go with Nate because he's a safer choice. Well, I, I they don't have they don't have any chemistry. No, those two. But yeah, but I want to I want to tease out the definition of of safe because Nate Nate is an in, Nate is an intentional man. Like that, I think what this movie does in making reference to other westerns is that Jim Jim is a drifter, and normally the drifter is the hero, right? He is but, the hero. but Jim 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 is not like but Jim is not like Shane. Shane is Jim and Jim and Nate in a blender, but right. But the, but if you, but what if you, what if you separated out Shane into the two people, right? Because there's some, there's a sentimentality about Shane, which is you're going to blend all the good things about Nate with all the good things about a Jim. But what if you tease them apart and had a woman choose between them? Right. Yeah, and it's I like, Ella's very practical. It's, but it's not just about practicality and it's not just about the, she loves both of them. She says, don't you think a woman could love two men? He goes, well, I guess you can love three. I guess you can love a hundred, but it's not, you know. but, it, but there's, but it's not convenient, which is, that's right. a, that's a great line, but uh, it's, it's that he's able to grapple with life and commit. And, and I don't think that the, the commitment yes. is just, is just safety, right? He, he doesn't show her like a fort of, a fortress in the woods. It's a, it's a cabin with like one teapot, a little bit of wallpaper and she tastes the stew, you know, and right. And what this, the, what the stew could use is a, is a woman. She makes a face at him and he makes right. a face back at her, which is, which is funny. And so they, like, they don't, he doesn't have the romance of a gym and clearly she's carried away by the romance of a gym. But that, but you have to, you have to live your life a different way. And she fundamentally knows something about America that Nate knows too. And Jim doesn't know the secret. And it's the secret that's shared between the two of them that I think makes the bond between Nate and Ella. Because they don't tell you where Nate actually comes from. And I didn't look it up. But the implication, at least in terms of the universe of the movie, is that he's the son of either a Russian or Polish immigrant and decided at some point to side with them to learn how to write English and to choose society, to choose to build something there, right? It's it's no, they build a church first, they build the Orthodox church, and then they build the roller skating rink, which is all of society, right? It's like, if you have a place to buy and sell and trade and live indoors and drink, and you can go to church and go to the roller skating rink, which says an exhilarating and moral experience over it. That was my note for the end. You just took my thunder for the end, a moral and exhilarating experience. Which was, was had by all, which is, I think, which is down to the down to the foundations of this movie because how long will how long will romance stand you in good stead i i don't right as i don't know from 1870 to 1890 but it won't last you until 1903 for that you need wallpaper on the walls well he i mean he had it right but i think that that's is that the the movie also if that's the case then the movie also teases you because that's why the breakup scene works. You desperately, I think as a viewer, at least in my heart, you want Jim and her to be together. That's that's the that's how you want this triangle to become a straight line is that Jim's going to end up with Ella. You know, Nate is sympathetic, which also makes the movie better. That one of them is not a, she's not like in love with like a, a hero and a villain, blah, blah, blah. The, all three of them are sympathetic people. And you can understand where all of them are coming from. 
but there's there's not she she doesn't look at Christopher Walken for a nanosecond the way she looks at at Chris Christopherson. No, I uh, listen. I I understand. My my point is that Nate Nate makes the choice. He makes the correct choice first, and the correct in in terms of Ella, the correct choice first is to say, "I love you, and I want I don't just want you to go away with me. I want you to come away with me to a place where we will live together. I love you." Right. What he says to Ella is, "Why don't you get on out of here for a while, and then I'll you know I'll call you when yes. it's safe." He wants her to leave. Which right. is also very noble. He doesn't want her around. He doesn't want to catch. A I'm not. Bullet. I'm not saying it, it's 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 less noble. It's it's not the same. I think you're. I think you're dumping on James a little bit. I'm not. He I wants think, her I, out a, of there. That's why he's angry. He's a he great, doesn't want her to. He's a great. No, because she says this is all my. This is where all my stuff is. He goes. These are just things. He flips the chair over. These are just things. But these things don't matter. Yeah, but they're but they're not because she does know something about America that he doesn't, which is that it can happen here. If they chase you out of Wyoming, they'll chase you out of Kansas. If they chase you out of Kansas, they'll chase you out of California. Because you, certain people, certain kinds of people, have been driven continent to continent. So you think it's just state to state, but it's not. There's no safe place on earth unless you put your wall up and you put the wallpaper. And 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 I think that that's what Chimino's getting at. That's what the movie's getting at. Which also ties into the title. That's supposed to be the you know, the edge of the edge of civilization. This is the gateway to heaven, right? This is this is kind of like this is the promised land, so to speak. And at the end, you know, Jim Jim ain't there. And I think that's what's so bone crushing about the ending. Yeah, I, a th white uh wrote a um a book of his diary entries called England have my bones and I think Ella and Nate both are Wyoming have my bones and Jim starts off as a mystery but you only need you only need a two minute snippet of his life it's not it's not like a sequel to the original movie of what happens to Jim after Heaven's Gate 90 seconds of it is enough to give you the flavor to know where it ends. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about Heaven's Gate. Mike, I am so glad you finally came around. What a great movie. You can follow us on Twitter at 15MINFilm. You could follow us on Letterbox. Letterbox. If you go on Letterbox, you can tell us what to watch next. You can tell us on Twitter what to watch next. And you can also have a lot of fun reading other people who have come to Heaven's Gate late in the game like us and have started to annoy their friends and say, you got to see this movie. Thanks for listening. You got to see this movie.